Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends Tim and Aubrey. Say your last name Chavez. for Chavez. Is that right? That's very close, yes. I'm going to spell it for our listeners. It's C-H-A-V-E-S. And they are a married couple with four kids in their 30s. They live in Utah County. Um, I think your oldest is 11. Yeah, that's right. And we're recording this on a Saturday, and I think you've left your kids in charge of themselves. So we're at the age we... That's a great age to do that. Yes. Right. We may have to take a phone call. <laughs> that's great. Um, I became aware of Tim as I listened to a Faith Matters podcast that he did with Patrick Mason. And Patrick Mason's great. Um, but as I was listening to Tim ask questions to Patrick Mason, I recognized that Tim has a story to tell. And so I wanted to get Tim on the podcast, and I messaged him, and he said, I'd love to, but and I'd love to bring my wife, Aubrey, with me. So I thought, great, we'll have both of them on the podcast. And Aubrey just offered a wonderful prayer before we started. But this is a podcast talking about people that go through faith crises or faith transitions and want to and are able to stay members of our restored church. And I went through what I call a mini faith crisis as a YSA bishop, and I've landed a place that's sustaining for me as a committed member of the church. And um, Tim and Aubrey are going to talk about their journey going through the same type of experience. And they have just really thoughtful insights and have been brave enough to share their journey in a couple of places that I've read about. It's a great story. And it's couples like these two that give me hope for the future of our church, for the future of society with their thoughtful um, insights into our church, into the doctrine of our church, a little bit about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, which is a sensitive issue for most of our millennial members. So um, just an overview of the podcast. We're going to have four sections, roughly. Tim will talk about his own faith crisis, and then we'll have Aubrey share her perspective as they shared that journey together, and Aubrey kind of walked through the same space, and that's the second section. The third section is about belonging and how to belong. And as part of that, we'll talk about the Face Matters effort and podcasts that they're a part of. And then we'll talk about number four, um, which Aubrey called this gifts of a faith crisis. And I love that positive term that Aubrey uses. Uh, just by way of introduction, let's have you introduce your family to us, Aubrey. Where did you two meet and grow up and Tell us about your boys and girls and where are you raising your family? Sure. So uh, Tim and I both grew up in mostly in Sandy, Utah, and we we sort of grew up together. We've known each other since seventh grade English. So we've been good friends ever since. Uh, Tim went on his mission to Uruguay and um, was studying at BYU and I was at Utah State and we both ended up home on the same semester and started dating pretty quickly after his mission and were married in 2006. So we have, uh, yeah, four four kids. Our oldest is eleven, all the way down to two, and we live in Utah County now, and are raising the kids. And do you have boys, so girls? One boy, an eight year old boy, and the rest girls. And three girls. So, That's great. Yeah, yeah. And tell us where you've lived around the United States, and what, what took you where? So uh, when Tim finished school, um, he he worked for a little bit, and then decided to apply to business school. And uh, so we left for um, Harvard Business School in Boston, Massachusetts, and lived there for a couple of years and uh, switched coasts about halfway through for an internship in um, San Francisco, and then finished business school and came home. So been Welcome around just back. a little bit. 
Um, We've had some members of our family that have gone to Harvard Business School. I remember meeting my brother there and his wife, and they were married with one or two kids. And I thought, this is a great experience, but it's complicated just logistically going to grad school in Harvard. Tell us about that, Tim. Yes. Well, it's just, it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a very different uh, environment than the uh, suburbs of Salt Lake City than that we were used to. Um, It's, it's far more expensive. It's far more difficult to get around, but um, just culturally it's, uh, it's, it's easy to see why people love Boston. I mean, there's so much to do so much to experience and so much for the kids to take in, especially, um, you know, especially around sort of the history of our, of our nation. And we loved our, we loved our time out there. But then when you move back, it's also just a lot easier when you have three, four kids. I mean, the, the conveniences, um, of, uh, suburban life are definitely real. So do you guys own a minivan? We do. It's, it's parked my out dream front. Car. Yeah. <laughs> it's my shameless dream car. Does it <laughs> Double have TVs in the cars? No, we're TVs not. And... No, no TVs. I guess that's my dream car. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, let's get right into this, Tim. Just share with us your return missionary, kind of traditional believing LDS guy, served a mission in Uruguay, get married, and you're off. And then you have a faith crisis. So yeah. tell us about that term and your own in your own journey. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, I mean, traditional believing for sure, and potentially even more traditional and more believing, you know, than, uh, than many from a young age. I, I like to joke that, you know, a lot of times in high school, uh, you know, kids will have, you know, potentially, uh, potentially bad influences and want to, you know, go, go and do different things. That was not our experience. Aubrey and I, like she mentioned, were very close friends in high school. And we had a group of friends around us that were also very close and were very, uh, very, very uh, traditional and believing and good people. And I, the the joke is, and it's kind of true that there was a a little bit of a competition about who went to the temple more to do baptisms for, baptisms for the dead in our in our group of high school friends. And you you would know because they would show up in first period wearing Sunday clothes. That means they had gone. That means they went to the temple. That means they went to the temple. Yeah. Um, and so we were. I mean, we were very uh, very orthodox and and both raised in families that were that were that way. Um, and I think I, I can't speak for Aubrey here. I think, well, I think I can, but we both loved our childhoods and our, in our youth. Um, I, I guess on my mission were where the first seeds of faith crisis, although it, it certainly didn't manifest itself during my mission, but you know, you start to have to defend the church in certain, in certain situations. Um, and in a lot of cases as a missionary, you're unfamiliar with uh, with the attacks that people will use. And back in those days, you know, it was what we called, you know, anti-Mormon propaganda. And it, you know, it turned out after I got back from my mission, I guess I, I wanted to arm myself, you know, against, against some of those attacks. And so this is, you know, roughly 2006 and I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to know, you know, what's out there and how I can defend the church. And so the, the thing that you do is go to the internet and that's what I, that's what I started doing. Um, I found I found Fair Mormon. That was sort of the best repository for me to find, you know, what people were saying and how I how I could respond. And um, that was a that was an interesting experience for me because it sort of started down it started this path of a little bit of cognitive dissonance where I would say, okay, here's the attack, uh, here's the defense, but then I like really in my heart I was like. In some cases, I was like, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that defense. Like, I'm honest. A, yeah, I'm not sure if I really buy that. And um, so then what I what I wanted to do was 
uh, get a little bit more into like the scholarly, like the true scholarly efforts. And so I started reading Rough Stone Rolling um, by Richard Bushman. And this is 2000, you know, 2006, 2007. And I got maybe a uh, hundred pages in and skipped ahead to the polygamy chapters because that's really where I wanted to, that, that was maybe one of the big issues that I wanted to defend. And I ended up putting it down because it was just too much for me to handle at that point. It yeah. felt like, go ahead. yeah, it just felt like if this is, if this is true, which I took it that it was because, you know, this book is sold in Deseret Book and it's, it was written by a faithful believing member, then it's just, it's not, it's not an attack anymore. It's just what, you know, it's just what happened. And that, I think that scared me, you know, to the point where I, like I said, I put the book down and I didn't, and I just sort of pushed it off for a couple of years. Um, by the time sort of 2010, 2011 came around, I just, it, it was this, it was an instance where, you know, I, I had put that on, on the proverbial shelf, but the shelf was really starting to creak. And so I, I've, you know, finished rough stone rolling. I continue to do more online research and find out about the issues. And at, at some, at some point in that time frame, I started thinking, wow, you know, I really don't know if the church is true. And that, that was disturbing to me because it was important to me either culturally or whatever it was to be able to say that I knew the church was true. Um, even on my mission, even early on in my mission in the MTC, I brought up with one of my teachers, like, Hey, like we, we were learning to say, I know the church is true. We didn't even, I mean, we learned that, we learned the verb to know before we learned the verb to believe. Right. And so we were saying, yo sé que I know that. And I said, Hey, like, I don't know if I can say I know. And, you know, to his credit, he gave me a, he gave me a, an out. He said, you don't have to say, you know, which I think is, which I think is great. But he also, um, he also said like, but you know, spiritual knowing is different than, is different than, you know, rational knowing. And so that was sort of my, that was sort of my kickoff into this world of, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I was, I think very much in that world for the next four or five, I mean, six years really from the time I was on my mission until this sort of faith crisis is now coming to a head. And what was tough for me too, was that I felt like Aubrey had married me on the premise that I knew that the church was true. And, you know, we had been, you know, in our, uh, sort of intimate moments, we had shared testimony with each other. And I had said, I know, and I felt, and, you know, it's on that basis that you get married in the temple and you're sealed for a time in all eternity and you're, you, uh, form an eternal family. And so the idea that I no longer knew, and I'm not saying that any of this is doctrinal, this is my perception, right? Um, and so the prospect of potentially having to tell Aubrey that I didn't know that the church was true, that I didn't, um, you know, know really where my testimony stood was terrifying in a lot of ways. And so I, I sort of batted that around for, you know, probably a few months until finally, I remember one night we were driving, we were driving home on the freeway and I guess just a wave of vulnerability or whatever it was came over me. And I decided this is, this is the time. And I told Aubrey um, that I didn't that I didn't know that the church was true, and I kind of I didn't give her all the details or at what of what had been bothering me or any of that, um, but I gave her the the high level of where I was at testimony wise, and I was really scared. I I literally I thought it was possible that she was going to say, "Well, that's it," you know, wow. like I'm gonna like 
I want to be married to someone that I can form an eternal family with. Because in my mind, I guess at that time, not knowing was the equivalent of not having faith. And now I, you know, I very much differentiate those two. And if I didn't have faith, then I probably wasn't worthy of an eternal family. And so it was, um, it was really scary. And I'll let Aubrey probably chime in here about what she was feeling, you know, during that, uh, during that confession. Um, but to her credit, she never gave me even a moment's pause about, you know, her love for me or her commitment to being together and continuing to form our family, you know, both through, um, I, I, I don't remember exactly the way it, it went, but the way I'm imagining it is that she just put her hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay. I want to know everything that you're seeing and thinking. And I want to know everything yeah. you're seeing and thinking. Yeah. And she wanted to work through it together. And that was an absolute huge relief. Like part of it, you know, part of it was my relationship, questioning my relationship with the church and with my faith. But then the other part was questioning based on, you know, what I had come to believe or uh, come to not believe potentially part of it was questioning my relationship with Aubrey and not having that be in question was an absolute gift. You know, I never doubted my place in our, in our family because of what she, because of how she responded and how she, and not just in that moment, but her actions over, you know, the coming years. Tim, thanks for just sharing that. It takes courage just to talk into a mic, yeah. <laughs> knowing that there's people going to hear what you just shared and, Thanks for doing what you just did. Yeah, it's so honest and so I just sent your great spirit and your desire to always do what's right. This isn't about not wanting to do the right thing or turning away from God. This is just about being authentic to how you feel and then having the courage driving down or up the freeway. Yeah. Open up to Aubrey. Aubrey, do you want to share? Sure, yeah. So I remember that exact place on the freeway when did he you said those words. you have kids in the car? It was just the two of you. I don't that remember time, if there were kids in the car. We would have had two little kids, I think, yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I remember him saying that and it was like one of those slow motion moments. And I, I hate that he ever, you know, had to wonder what my reaction would be, but that's really telling about our worldview at that point. It was such a, it was such a part of our life to, to have a testimony. It was like a, it was a, it was such a deep part of us to know that the church was true. And it, our whole life was oriented around that knowledge and so it was really, it was a really disorienting moment to hear like this person who I trust more than anyone in the world and know better than anyone in the world and love more than anyone is, is it can, can have this uncertainty. And so it was all at once that I realized how many mis misconceptions I had about people who left the church. First of all, that I realized, oh my gosh, it's not about oh, you know, laziness or sin or whatever thing you hear at church. It just, I could see that he was speaking out of integrity and I respected that so much and, and did truly just want to, um, want him to know that we're still a unit and, and I do want to know why he's wondering. And, and it, it felt so clear to me in that moment that nothing would change about our relationship, of course. So anyway, but, um, it was a, I feel like that moment was also a gift for me because it gave me some space to really examine my own testimony and decide what was fear-based and what, what had I defended because I was afraid to imagine a world any other way and what, what were really 
um, what were the things that really resonated with me that I truly believed because I felt them deeply. And, and that was a really messy thing to figure out for a long time. And I don't think that I would have had the courage to be the first one to start that process if Tim hadn't, hadn't done it first. So, so he really made space for me to, to start examining my faith. And I, I felt almost immediately grateful for, for a little bit of peace and time. And I I just felt like I had room to really explore. How do I actually feel? Like, are there things that I'm uncomfortable with? Are there things that maybe I don't actually know? And, and so that moment was a gift for me as scary as it was, because there was suddenly so much uncertainty in our life. Um, it really, it it really was a a gift for our marriage and, and for both of our, our faith journeys. Do you feel like Tim tried to pull you to his direction, um, or did you feel it was more you wanted to understand because you love this guy so much and and you've just seen his good heart, you wanted to understand what had caused him to feel this way? Yeah, I, it was, at the beginning, I think it was so tender. It was so hard to talk about for either of us that it, it took years. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like that burst the floodgates. And then we were talking about it all the time at first, it was so tender and scary that it was, it was like, he said it and it was out, but it was so scary to talk about and to, to really dive into for a little while, because I think we were both trying to find some, find something that felt stable to hold on to and, and everything felt shaky suddenly. And so, so there was no, we weren't arguing about it or being persuaded. He wasn't persuading me and I wasn't persuading him. We just, it was just kind of out there now and we both knew it. And then I, th- I think we both sort of individually kind of started on our own, on our own journeys. And then as we became more comfortable with this idea that we were exploring it, then it was easier to talk about and we could both have, have opinions and, and dissect them together and not feel so threatened by everything that was new, which is kind of how it felt at the beginning. It was just, it was so scary. At first, because there's un- so much unknown, did you think this could end your marriage or that Tim could leave you over this? No, I never worried about our marriage, but I it was scary to imagine 20 years down the road and what, are we going to still be in the church and do we have to leave if we don't have a testimony? I remember that thought playing over and over that if I don't know the church is true or if I if I feel sure that it's not then what does that mean tomorrow? Like, can we, should we not go to church on Sunday? It was, everything felt there like there was so much pressure. And so I think in the beginning, it was just working through hypotheticals. It wasn't even, I couldn't, it was like a, it was like a, a new wound that was so fresh. I just needed to like let the swelling go down for a little while, you know, like I just needed to sit with it for a little bit and, and think about, all the, every hypothetical situation, what would it be like if our kids didn't get married in the temple? Or what would it be like if Tim couldn't stand in the circle and I needed to walk through the worst case scenario, all of those cultural things that were making me feel so much pressure. I needed to just walk to the end of the line of every single scenario so that I could finally get those out of my system a little bit and actually start thinking about how I, how I felt because it was so cloudy with, with that outside pressure that I couldn't even, it was too hard to to think about something so, so, um, personal and elusive as faith until those were out of the way. I love the way you did that. I, I sometimes when I talk to therapists, they often take us there and then it's sort of the reality of the worst thing we're potentially thinking. We kind of own it. And then you're, you know, your marriage isn't ending. So you knew that wasn't part of your worst things, but some yeah. of these things like Tim not being in the circle, 
um, and then you sort of own it. Somehow that allows you to move on and have peace. So I like, I don't know if you did that on your own or had somebody in your life that helped you do that, or maybe Tim helped you do that. What would you say, because you're kind of the have two questions that come to mind. One is, did you then go through your own faith crisis or transition? And the second question is, um, what would you say to the spouse, you know, when another spouse opens up about, I don't, I'm not sure the church is true, what advice would you give to that spouse? So those are two questions that could be five-minute answers, sure. Aubrey. Well, I'll, I'll answer the <laughs> second our one answers. first. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the thing, when I eventually really felt like I was in the middle of what felt like a real crisis. The thing that was most helpful from Tim is just, um, I just needed validation. I think my issues weren't necessarily always shared by, by him. And it was so nice to just be able to say the worst parts of myself, like what, like just say the most unformed thoughts, but all of the things that were swirling around and just be able to spew them out and, and trust that he would keep that to himself and just it wouldn't change how he felt about me. And that relationship felt so secure that I think that's kind of what healed me. And, and I think there were a lot of times where I was really digging in on a certain subject and I was probably really off base and probably didn't even, didn't have facts right completely, but it was helpful to not have to argue about it, to just be heard and say exactly what I was thinking and, and know that I could always go to him and, and feel complete acceptance and validation. And, and that made me feel really safe in the relationship so that I could keep working through it. And had it become really personal between us, I think it would have, it would have been an obstacle in my own faith development because it would have been about us and not about faith. So, so just having that constant security was, was the biggest blessing. And I think, um, if I can just jump in really quick, I, I think a lot of time, what I was worried about was that Aubrey would be so focused on the future, the very long-term future, like our you know po- post-mortal future, that it would be worth it to That's her. That's a ways down the road. It's a ways down the road, yeah. <laughs> but like, if her perspective was, I need to have you know someone that's going to be worthy of having this this idea of an eternal family, then it might like the utilitarian in Aubrey might you know it might make sense for her to say this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work now. And I, this always thinking about this always reminds me of uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens in in their book The Christ Who Heals. They have this great quote that says that heaven apart from those we love is just hell by another name. Yeah. And I think that what's absent a lot of times from uh, from our thinking is that we really truly can have heaven on earth right now by being with those that we love. And so I think this idea that I'm going to sacrifice being apart from those I love now in order to have this heaven in the future is you're, you're sacrificing heaven right now and inadvertently creating, creating a different version of hell. And like Aubrey said, I, I think that idea, that, um, strength and bond that we had in our marriage and that safe space that we created was even though we were questioning what we even knew about, you know, the very long-term future, we created our own little heaven with each other, mm-hmm. you know, by going through this together. Is your marriage better off for going through this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why, Aubrey? I think probably just because it requires so much vulnerability. It was, it was, an, it was getting in the habit of expressing your deepest fears, and I, I think I had really learned to keep those to myself, and, and I think it just made us, 
it made us so much closer to be able to say, this is the thing I'm, I'm so afraid of. And, and I think that's probably because you're just, you're never on the same page. It's so fluid. I, every day I felt a little bit different. It was, it would have been impossible for us to always feel the same at church. And so you just feel so vulnerable that this week, maybe Tim's a little more in than I am. And the next week I'm a little more in. And so you, you, it was just this, it was a constant, um, battle to just make sure that we were together as a unit. And I can't imagine something that could have been better for us in a marriage to just have to be so conscious about, about recognizing what, what is my own woundedness that's making me feel defensive about what Tim's saying right now? Well, I'm afraid of these things. And, and so it it was just, these were hours of dinner conversations that, that forced me to face the thing that I felt most vulnerable about, vulnerable about and, and say it. And I think that kind of, that kind of shared vulnerability just just makes you so close. And so I, yeah, I feel like our, it transformed our, our marriage. You said a phrase in there that I wrote down part of it. What is my own woundedness that is keeping me, I think I'm paraphrasing the rest of it, mm. keeping me from fully listening to what Tim is sharing with me. What a yeah. thoughtful comment. Thoughts on this, Tim? Do you think your marriage is better yeah. because you went through this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, and we to this day now have this habit, and we I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but when dinner ends, we <laughs> just sit there for probably 30 to 45 minutes and talk about whatever the issue is uh, in that uh, from that day. You know, and usually, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about necessarily stress at work, but like, you know, I, I heard this thing or, you know, obviously there are obviously uh, changes happening all the time now in the church and there are different uh, voices, you know, in this space that are talking about, talking about in different ways. And those, those, you know, half hour to hour conversations after church are where we address those things with each other. And I think just so inadvertently that vulnerability that willingness to talk about those things has actually created another space that we didn't even have before. Mm-hmm. That's actually, you know, more time intensive in a good way for us to just get to know each other and understand each other better. And so the willingness to talk about anything and the, the ability to truly express ourselves opens up, not just the fact that you're talking about those things, but it's more, it's more time together. Mm-hmm. You know? I love that. What advice do you have Tim for others that are, in your space that you were and, and worried about opening up to their spouse and are hearing this podcast and kind of hearing this beautiful story that at times I'm sure are some of your most painful moments, but sometimes that leads to what you're describing as this wonderful, better foundation. Yeah. So what advice would you have for those that, I mean, that's a really, to me, that's a really, really tough question because I don't think there's um, one set. Yeah. And I don't think that everyone's response, I, like, I would love to say, hey, just be open and vulnerable immediately because look what happened. Aubrey was totally open to it. Like, I don't think that always happens. It's real thoughtful. Unfortunately. And and so I think it is a matter of sort of studying it out That's and great figuring answer. it out, figuring out what, uh, you know, what pieces are... Um, you know, what pieces on the, on the chess table, everybody's got going. And I, I was able to open up with Aubrey because I think over the, you know, five years that we had been married, she had given, she had given me indications. And like I said, I was unclear on what her response would be, but she had never given me reason to believe that the response would be, response would be negative. And so, um, I think in the long run, it would be, 
um, I, I don't think it's ever right to to just uh, just hold things inside and to never be open and vulnerable. But at the same time, I think you do need to be very thoughtful about timing, about how you approach it, and all those things. And I wish there were I wish there were a you know one one stop answer for everybody, but I'm not sure that there is. I think I think it's probably safe to say at least that the the way to approach it is not with a list of problems that you see in the church. I think had Tim in the car that day said, you would not believe what I just learned about anachronisms in the book of Mormon. I mean, my, like my defenses would have shot up and it, I, but because he, he approached it with so much honesty and I could see that he was in pain and worried and, and he was, he was doing something really hard. Those defenses weren't there. I, I was, it was easier to just really listen and, and hear what he was feeling. And I, I think there was another way he could have done that that would have it's that would have really caused me to tighten up and feel and, and feel like I needed to defend the church. So yeah. I think that's right. I think each issue and there are, you know, potentially many and everybody has different issues, but can be an arrow. Right. And so mm. you don't want to you don't want to fire all of those arrows at once if you fire them at all. Right. I think what Aubrey's saying is is absolutely true. There's a there's a way to express uh, there's a way to express doubt um, and uh, even, you know, lack of belief if, uh, but, but at the same time, not necessarily turn it into an attack. And I think not, not on that person. I think it it would be a rare case where it's a, it's a direct attack on the person that you're, that you're telling these things to, but the church is so involved in our lives and our faith is such a part of our lives. And I think that's something that our faith does really well, that an attack on the faith in any way can seem like an attack on that person. And so I think you do. Yeah, I, I think it just needs to be really uh, thoughtful and careful and done in a um, in, in a way that's considerate of where that person of where that person's at. How long of a time did you wonder if you'd find a way to stay in the church? I don't I'm I'm wondering if there was a period of time where you thought, you know, I'm not sure I'll be able to stay. And if that time existed, talk to our listeners how long that time existed and then talk to our listeners um just what, how you were able to stay. Um, and the feeling is that you'll probably, oh, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I sense when we went live, you're in a place that you feel sustainable. And yeah. You feel like you'll be mm-hmm. in the church. Yeah. I think, I think we are. Um, I, the, the answer to the first question, how long, and was there, was there a time like that? Yes, absolutely. Where we were wondering if we would be able to stay. And it was, I mean, I think it was many years yeah, to be honest. To honest. Um, I think, a lot of times you do hear about people that, you know, read something online and, you know, a week later they're out of the church. And that was never, for, for some reason, that was never us. Like we were never going to make a quick decision like that. I think um, we were really uh, committed to, to figuring it out over the long run because, because our faith was and is, you know, such an important part of who we are. And we, I think we've thought a lot about what we would be, what we'd be giving up by leaving. And there was, there was really not a, not a case to be made for just giving that up without really going through some struggle first. And so I guess once we got into, once we got into this mode where we were able to openly share with each other, we, we, you know, we started listening to, to podcasts, um, quite frequently. And I remember actually in one, um, in one particular case, I was listening to an episode, uh, that Terrell Givens was a guest on of, of Mormon stories. And, 
uh, that and listening to Terrell Givens for the first time, and I had listened to, I had listened to and read from, you know, many different, many different scholars and, you know, believing uh, faithful members that had um, sort of started to approach these issues. And I think that's something that's really important uh, to a lot of people when they, and it was certainly to us, once they start this period of faith crisis is I want to hear and read just everything out there and, and start to, and start to absorb and figure out what I, what I really believe. And there was something different when I heard, when I heard Terrell, because there was a fairly pointed question at him, um, about anachronisms in the book of Mormon. And I think the question was specifically was about horses and, and the host, um, said, you know, what do you, what do you have to say about that? And Terrell said, well, I think that it's a problem. And Terrell, if you've ever met him or read him, is about the most faithful uh, and committed member of the church that there is. And for him to say that he thought that, you know, that would potentially was a real issue that needed to be dealt with. And at the same time, he was an absolutely faithful and committed member of the church, holding those those two ideas in tension uh, and just continuing forward really opened up uh, a path, I thought, for me to say, because what I'd been trying to do up till that point was resolve every single issue that there was. You know, I had to take it one at a time, say, okay, how, how do I make polygamy okay? How do I make the Book of Mormon okay? How do I make, how do I make the Book of Abraham okay? And those things, that, that can become overwhelming and it can become a full-time job. And, uh, and you may end up you know, not being okay with one or, or more of those issues. And so to get this, to get this new perspective where it was, where it was okay to say, I'm still in and I have these, uh, uh, you know, these issues, these problems, or these other ways of, of thinking about things, sort of having that modeled for me originally by Terrell was really, really life-changing. And, Again, that wasn't that wasn't the type of thing where I heard that and it was snap your fingers and you know I'm I'm good. But that was the that was at least the sort of germination of a of a path that I think is sustainable. You know, to hold be able to hold multiple sort of competing viewpoints in tension and and still move forward. I love that. I really love that. Aubrey, I'll, things to add? Sure. Yeah. Um, I so for 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 me the real um, brunt of the faith crisis opened up around plural marriage. And I, I think it really started, I think it started because Tim had sort of introduced this idea of uncertainty. And, and so suddenly the things that had always been very painful for me were just excruciating because I didn't, I, I suddenly was able to comprehend the question. What if it's not true? What if it's not true? And I think I'd never, ever in my whole life been able to wrap my head around that world. It just, it was too foreign. It was too hard to imagine that maybe it's not. And so as soon as I was able to do that once, then, then the things that hurt most about the church felt like a bigger deal. And, and so that was what brought my whole shelf down. It was just, I, in fact, I remember it was a very specific day, um, that Tim and I were having a conversation with an old friend and some, we were talking about something in the early church and, and the story involved, uh, some plural marriage. And, and I just remember hearing this friend and how he, he could talk about it with, with just this carefree curiosity. And, and it was something about that tone that made me realize that the most painful part about this idea of plural marriage was not this hypothetical heaven that I thought I'd always, you know, that haunted me. It was something that I literally, it haunted my dreams. It was something that 
I thought about when I didn't want to, when I was alone in the car, it was, it would creep into my thoughts or when we were just happy together, it was like this dark shadow that just followed me and, and having this new uncertainty around just made that, it just made that a bigger, I couldn't, I couldn't keep ignoring it. I couldn't run from it anymore. But I remember on that afternoon that seeing him talk about it with just this almost a flippancy like seeing that dissonance that I could tell that he had never felt the, the intense pain that I felt around plural marriage. And it made me realize that the most acute pain that I had there was not about jealousy. It was really about how unequal it felt. It was that I, I felt like I was less than a man in God's sight. And, and, and I really had to, that was the first time that I think I had really faced that. And so I decided that I just needed to learn everything I could about it. And, and so I remember going to the scriptures first and looking up anything I could find about marriage. And that was like a big mistake, right? Because the old Testament is all about, you know, women, anything with marriage in the old Testament is a woman being given to a man. And, and I remember reading and finishing and just feeling so low. I just, I felt like the penny and Tim's and nickel, you know, like I just, I couldn't see how God could see me equally if this was how it was meant to be. And, and so that was really what, what launched my faith crisis. It, it, it was just this room to realize that I just couldn't stand this. It just felt so off. And so, um, for me, it was, it was this new way of looking at faith and, and like, like Tim was bringing up with Terrell Givens, just this idea that I could acknowledge that this hurt and this felt wrong to me. And at the exact same time that there were good fruits that came from Joseph Smith and, and I didn't have to choose one or the other necessarily. And I had, I had, that's what I had felt up to that point that I had to, I was literally keeping a, a Google doc with like points for the church points against the church and like trying to weigh, like, should we be here? And could this, could he really have been a prophet with, if all this had happened? And so I think a huge turning point for me was realizing that I could say plural marriage does not resonate with me. I don't know what was meant to happen or what's going to happen, but I know that I am equal. I know that God values me. And, and I, um, I remember specifically having a, I remember one really awful day that I was reading rough stone rolling and I was in the Emma chapters. And I remember just, just, I just couldn't comprehend how, how it could be true. How could this really have happened? And how could God be in this? And, and I remember just kind of taking a break and looking for, for some kind of inspiration. And I got on the church's website and this talk came up and it was one of those experiences where I, I just skimmed down and it was like one line was just leaping off the page. And it said, it said, no woman should ever, should ever question how the savior values womanhood. And the grace of that moment was not that I read that sentence, but just that I, I felt the most intense peace just settle over me that that was true. And that instead of starting with my problems, starting with plural marriage and trying to decide what that said about God, I, I needed to start from this truth that I felt from such a deep place that, that God saw me equally and that I was just as important as a man. And, and I could start from, from that piece and then figure out where to go from there. And I think from that point on, I, I felt like I had a little bit more room to explore and it wasn't, it wasn't a decision I was trying to make every day. If, if the, if the church earned my membership or not, it, I was just, I was just searching for good fruits and, 
And that search felt a lot more um, peaceful than, than like the debate that I had been having about whether the church was all good or all bad, because I think that, I think that's what the givens, what, what Terrell explained is that it's not all good or all bad. We're just, we're just looking for truth. And, and so I really had to, my paradigm really, really shifted about that point. And, and I also remember something, maybe it was in the same interview with Terrell, but I remember him talking about how, um, faith is not like gravity. Like we are, we're compelled to believe in gravity because every time you drop a pencil, it's going to fall. And faith is not that way. There will always be compelling reasons to believe or not to believe. And we get to make that decision. And that was so liberating for me because I, I did think I was sort of a victim of this faith crisis. I thought, I felt like it was happening to me and it was so scary to just wake up and, and try to take my temperature and feel like, did I have a testimony today or more than I did yesterday. And I don't know what I believe. And I really felt so powerless. And, and I, I think Terrell is, I think he's so right that this is a decision that we get to make. And I love that, um, Paul, there's a Paul Tillich quote about that faith is, or the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. And I, man, that is not how I ever thought about faith, but I totally believe that now. I think doubt is necessary for faith. You have to have that doubt if you're going to make a choice to believe. And and certainty is certainty prevented me from ever having to experience the vulnerability of of, of choosing to believe when it when it didn't seem like a sure thing. And so, I think that that was really a, a turning point for me. So. I. This is one of the better segments we've ever had on the podcast is just what you both just said because um, there's a pastoral implication of what do I do if I'm the priesthood leader or parent and you two open up. And and I love what Terrell Gibbons did because we can all do that. We can acknowledge the difficulty of the situation without needing to put it back in the nice tidy box with a simple answer because it minimizes your experience and how hard you've worked on this. Yeah. And... So I love what Terrell Gibbons did for you, and I love your own personal journey with polygamy. Mm-hmm. And um, you use the word grace, and just you know, you just you've never probably been able to resolve polygamy. Yeah. And no. if I were your <laughs> friend or your priesthood leader, and I were trying to resolve polygamy, I don't think that's going to help you stay in the church. But the feeling of our doctrine, yeah. all like unto God, and a feeling of grace from that that one line in a talk, and just living with the ambiguity of that. Um, I certainly would have, if I were um, your singles word bishop and you were single and I was early in my assignment, I would have been trying to resolve all this for you. I would have felt like that was my job. Mm -hmm. And I might have given you a conference talk or scripture to read and kind of bring you Mm -hmm. back to the way you were. And now my experience is this is awesome what you've gone through. And isn't it beautiful? And your ability now... Your marriage is better. Your ability to help people is better. I think if you came on the podcast in 20 years and talked about your ability to be better parents, you're probably seeing some of that fruit now, but you're going to raise teenagers and you, I mean, now you're almost yeah. there. And I just think one of the beautiful chapters of your future is this journey you went through before you're going to, and I'm sure you're teaching your kids in a more thoughtful way right now, but especially in their teenage years and twenties and thirties as they have you two in their life and the, and the foundation you've set for them um, and just your role within the church with faith matters and everything you're doing to share your story and bring more understanding so more can navigate this. 
So, thank you. I hope so. Um, let's talk about belonging. So now you are probably different <laughs> yeah. than a lot of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Um, and just a comment on my own faith journey, it was a priesthood leader, my own home stake president, when I opened up to him some of my concerns, especially around LGBTQ, he gave me a model kind of like Terrell Gibbons did. He did that same thing for me. He talked about fallen dominoes. Um, and he gave me permission to have a few fallen dominoes, and he didn't make it about writing those dominoes around LGBTQ. Mm. Um, and then the domino analogy for me works because I have dominoes with really deep roots. A visual of a domino is one fall and they all fall. Yeah. And I like that. That's what I like about that model. And so I have dominoes that fell, and they're leaning on mm. other dominoes, and they're not coming up. <laughs> Um, and I don't make my relationship with the church about somehow making those dominoes straight again. And my priesthood leader doesn't require that of me. But I have dominoes with really deep roots that keep me mm-hmm. a, a believing member. And so that's a little bit maybe what Terrell gave, what my yeah, own stake president that. did Absolutely. for me. Let's talk about how you belong then. So now you have just a different feeling and um, talk about belonging. I don't know who wants to sure. start. Well, I, so it's it's funny that you say like if you had been... You know, if you had been our priesthood leader, your uh, response would have been to try to fix it. You know, exactly. and actually, we did we did go through that to some extent. I remember there was a, sort of a funny. Well, it wasn't funny at the time, but I guess it's funny now. Experience where Aubrey, I think, first felt like I felt if like we're I going to confess. Yeah, yeah, I felt like this was like something I had. I really had to like go confess. Yeah, and for like, some reason, living a lie. So I can't remember exactly what the circumstance was, but Aubrey went in. It was. I don't think he was even in Temple Recommend interview. It was just, no, I really was confessing that I didn't know if I knew of the okay. sister anymore. <laughs> but for some reason, it was with the counselor in our ward, Bishop Rick. Mm-hmm. And Aubrey brought that up with him. And I didn't even know that that was going to be happening. I was waiting outside the door for Aubrey. And the door opened. I didn't know what went on in there. And he called me in at that point and sat me down and told me very directly that I was putting my family in danger. Because I guess what had happened, and you can fill this in, Aubrey, but Aubrey had said that, you know, we're going through these doubts and we're doing it together and Tim feels the same way I do. And I I think he kind of took the patriarchal, you know, perspective and said, well, I need to get Tim in line so he'll get his his family in line. And he um, and polygamy came up and he said, well, do you not believe the angel and the flaming sword and all of that? And I was just like, hey, I wasn't even prepared to have this conversation. And. Um, I wouldn't say that that's been a, a pattern um, for sort of the rest of this time that we've gone through a, a faith journey that's been, you know, somewhat unorthodox. But I mean, maybe it's not been a pattern because we've learned our lesson to not really bring it up <laughs> with uh, with leaders. Um, but like, there have been, a, you know, there have been a few um, instances here and there where you know our true feelings, for whatever reason, were were made known, and we've been. Uh, corrected, you know, in some cases, um, in some cases severely wow. by leaders. And I, I think that, that can be a deal that can be the deal breaker for members. Yeah. Um, and you've navigated that. Yeah. And it has, that can be a deal breaker. Absolutely. You know. Well, I think what happens is that there's a, there's a crisis of faith. And then if you stay long enough, long enough, there's typically a crisis of belonging that, mm-hmm. that follows afterward. And I think we've really, we've really felt that because, what you start to, I mean, I don't know if you've talked about stages of faith on your podcast, yeah. um, or, um, stages of, of adult development. Yes. So, um, I think 
so in but Thomas McConkie's book, talk in, about him. Um, in Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, he talks about a, a stage called the, the diplomat. And that at that stage, I mean, in all stages, you know, of adult development have their their pros and cons. And um, one of the pros in that stage is a deep sense of belonging. But one of the you know, one of the cons is that there's also a high level of conformity. And I think and this is just my opinion now, but, you know, institutionally, it seems like we are somewhat in that stage and maybe maybe working our way out of it. But like if you look at, uh, you know, our faith tradition from a pretty high level, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of conformity happening. I mean, we all sort of dress the same and look the same. We use the same vocabulary um, when and even if you look at and I think this is changing now, especially with with come follow me. But like if you looked at our uh, our lessons on Sunday, like yeah. year after year, they were really they were the same thing and they like the same points were brought up and they were said in the in the same way. And it creates this it creates this very uh, sort of very heavy blanket of cultural norms. And when you start to and when you start to feel somewhat outside of that or when you're told that you're outside of that, then because you know, because the church in many ways, like I said, is, is good at those things and bringing us together as a community, like you can start to feel very much like you, like you don't belong and you do have to, and you do have to find a way to sort of take you, take your own belonging with you wherever you go, rather than needing to, to fit in, which can be, which can be a challenge. And I think it's a lifelong challenge in a lot of ways. I think, I think it takes time. First of all, I think when this is when it's new and fresh, you're mourning so many things about that certainty. It feels so safe for somebody else to always have the answers, to not have to wrestle with hard issues like like issues with um, the the church right now and LGBTQ stuff and and or plural marriage and anything that feels uncomfortable. It's so much easier to defer to an authority and not have to wrestle with how uncomfortable you feel with it. And so you you that feels like pain when you have to let that go and you feel very exposed. Like you have to, you have to suddenly figure out what God wants from you and, and you can't just shirk that responsibility anymore. And so you're mourning that piece. And, and I think there's also security around knowing that, that you are on the same page with your family or your, your neighbors or friends and people who, who, you know, well, and, and, you have that in common. And, and I think it's, that's so it's hard to realize that if they knew what you really thought, then maybe they would be nervous for you or they would tell you that you were not being careful enough. Or I don't know. I think that, I think you have to kind of let go of that too. And, and then I think it's, it can be really painful to just show up to church. And when you're, when you are in the middle of this rumble and you're trying to figure out what you really believe, everything feels triggering. You know, you, I feel like, I call it the diaper bag dig. Like there are so many times over the years where like I had to like bend over and pretend I'm like searching frantically for something in the diaper bag while I pull myself together because of something that a, a, a speaker said that just hit a tender point. And so I think that was about time. And when you asked before about how long it took before we felt, I felt peace about staying, I think it was like six or seven years. I mean, it it was a long time before I felt like, I think I can do this now or or not. I think I can do this, but I'm choosing to do this. And I, I, um, I remember coming across the story about Bishop Woolley and Brigham Young in, in church history and how he was, he, Bishop Woolley seemed like an especially, uh, opinionated 
leader and wasn't afraid to talk back to Brigham Young. And there's the the story about, um, I don't remember what they were arguing over, but there was some sort of heated argument and Brigham Young says, I guess you'll go and apostatize now. And, and Bishop Woolley said, if this were your church, then I'd be tempted to do so, but it's just as much my church as it is yours. And I think I kind of had to have that conversation in my mind with Brigham Young firstly, and then with other leaders, I like who, why, why, why do they belong? And I don't, and you know, this was, this is my church. This is my heritage. This is, this is my ancestors church and my family's church and my kids church. And I belong here because I'm here and because I choose to be here. And so that makes it mine too. And, and that makes it mine and all of the things that come with that, all of my uncertainty and, and beliefs, they belong here just as much as the person sitting next to me. And, and I think it took a really long time to feel that comfortable because we're, we just, I think it's so easy to just look for reasons why we don't belong. And when you're in the mindset of looking for reasons why you don't belong, you just, they just add up so fast. I, I, it's so easy to just sit back and wait for somebody to say something you disagree with. And, and I went to church like that for so many years, just sitting back and I, it was like tempting them to just say, I dare you to say something that I don't agree with because I'm really comfortable now saying, you know, just crossing that person off my list of allies. <laughs> and, and that the end game is that you feel so isolated. I felt completely alone. And, and so Thomas McConkie's book, uh, was a really big step for me in, in, in changing my, um, my understanding of what my goal was at church. It wasn't to go and, and stew about all the things I disagreed with. It was about, it was about looking for, um, for things that felt like God. And, and he talks about late in a later, um, part of the book, he talks about how we have this tendency to become exclusively inclusive. And I was so guilty of that. It, you know, when you're in that conformist stage, you're, you're, um, it's easy to exclude people who feel too progressive or outside of the norm, but, but later you kind of, you can flip flop that and you become really exclusive around people who you don't think are inclusive enough. And so I, I was doing that. I, I, anytime a leader said something that felt like it, it felt like they were, it was a tell they were either confessing that they were with me and they were going to try to be very inclusive to, to the fringes, or they were chastising me. And I was constantly sorting leaders into which category they fit into. And, and so Thomas's that point Thomas made really changed how I, how I go to church. And, and I think about this every time before church starts, I think about number one, am I being exclusively inclusive? And, and instead, can I look at this person and recognize that they're, they're, um, speaking out of love and that they went home and prepared this talk and, and they're trying so hard to connect to God, just like me. And I don't need to be, I don't need to, to be their judge just the way I would hope that they're not mine. And then the other thing that I really try to remember is from Brene Brown's, um, last book, Rising Strong. I love, her idea about, um, having generous assumptions and, and that has helped so much. Like it just doesn't cost us anything to have a generous assumption about the people we come in contact with. And it doesn't cost you anything to believe that whatever their life experience is, this is where it has brought them. And I can respect that. I can respect that this leader who maybe is bearing testimony about a vengeful God that doesn't resonate with me. I can respect that whatever happened in their life has brought them to that point and that they're speaking out of integrity and I can feel love for them and consequently connection to God through them, even while they're 
bearing testimony about a God that I don't believe in. So having that, I mean, it's a battle. I, I literally read those things to myself before, before, before church starts to remember that, that I, I don't have to judge. I don't have to decide if I'm the same. I'm just there to connect to God. And I, I think we can do that with, with the people, with our community, even though not one of us is on the exact same page. So that's been the biggest thing I think to help me feel belonging. And, and maybe one more, I remember one time I was, um, I remember just sort of venting to some friends that I, I was having such a hard time in Relief Society. And I remember telling them, I just need one person. If there was just one person who would raise their hand and say something that would show me that they understand where I'm coming from, that's all I would need to feel like I can be here. And and I remember them all just kind of looking and, and saying like, why, like, what are you waiting for? Like, who knows who else is sitting there thinking the same thing? Like, why aren't you raising your hand and, and saying the things that you wish someone would say? And it, it never occurred to me. I really, I had spent all these years just waiting for somebody to say, I can be your friend. And, and I was expecting this sort of connectivity that I was withholding. And I, I think as soon as I decided to just open up and be vulnerable and, and share how I really felt, people absolutely met me there. And, and that was not what I expected. And, and now I feel like Relief Society is a haven. It is, it's absolutely cool. where I go to feel fed. And, and I don't know that there's a single other sister in the room who shares a similar story or faith as, as I do, but I feel like there's really a sisterhood there because because there is so much shared vulnerability. And I, I really think that it was my withholding that made me feel so isolated. Yeah, to Aubrey's point about um, generous assumptions, I think, it, I think it really is really rare to encounter someone that's not doing their best in, mo- in most yeah. ways. And like I, I shared that brief story about, um, about the bishopric member who chastised me. And like, like Aubrey said, and this is a perspective we've talked about even more commonly just in the last year where as it's sort of come into focus for us is that even though I think that, you know, in many ways that was an inappropriate action, um, you know, he was absolutely doing that out of love. Like he was, he's legit from his perspective, I was putting my family in danger. And so the best mm-hmm. way, the best thing that he can do for me is to, is to correct me. And so while that comes across as very combative and like an attack from especially um, you know, when you're in that room and it's and actually experiencing it, which can be really difficult. If you're able to take a step back from your uh, amygdala a little bit and say, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. That's actually an expression of love, which, and, and that perspective obviously gives you license to feel a lot more charity back toward them. And another thing that Brene uh, Brown has brought up in another book, um, Braving the Wilderness is, is on the subject is to move in. Yeah. And this is something I'm not very good at. Aubrey, I would say, is is very good at. When you feel like someone is just so far apart from you and so different than you and has such different perspectives and you just can't feel any any love toward them, if you actually get to know them, it's a very rare case where you don't end up where you don't end up loving them and seeing that they are seeing that they are well intentioned. Mm-hmm. And um the the irony is that when you start feeling this way at church and then you hear you know, and then you hear the speakers or the teachers or whatever, and they, and, or the, just the commenters, and they say something that seems so far removed, your natural reaction is to move out. Like you want to separate yourself from that person or those, or those people. But if you can sort of buck that, 
natural instinct and move in instead. There's, I, like I said, I think there's, it's going to be a very rare case where you don't find that at their core, they are absolutely well-intentioned, they're loving, and they're doing their very best, just like, just like you are. It's really good stuff. Um, I'd love you to talk about Faith Matters and introduce that to any of our listeners that aren't aware. And another question that came to my mind is, you know, I think a lot of local leaders listen to this podcast and have heard you two talk, but what advice would you have for local leaders, for couples like you? Because um, I think a lot of our local leaders recognize there's couples like you um, that legit that want to stay. Their goal is to find an authentic way to stay, and they're going, what what do I do to create a culture in our wards so that couples like you two um, feel like they belong and feel like they can stay? So that's kind of two questions, Faith Matters and that second one. Yeah, I can give you the background on Faith Matters. Um, so ever since our initial uh, moments being introduced to Terrell Givens, we were super fans. And maybe and Fiona. And Fiona, yes, Terrell and Fiona. <laughs> um, and about two years ago, probably, um, there was this podcast that Aubrey heard called Conversations with Terrell Givens. And she sent it to me immediately. And we fell in love with it. And it turned out I kind of looked at the about page on the website and ended up without getting into a long story here, just connecting with the, with the founders, um, Bill and David Turnbull and Terrell was heavily involved with, uh, with faith matters. Faith matters is the, is the organization that put on the podcast, um, conversations with, with, uh, with Terrell Givens and just sort of volunteering our help. I have, I have a background in, uh, in web technology and in marketing a little bit. And I just said, Hey, if I can, if I can contribute, uh, then I'd love to. And Aubrey felt the same way and they welcomed us with open, uh, with open arms. And so for the, about the past year and a half, we've been, we've been working on, on this foundation, the faith matters foundation. And I think you're part of the executive team. That's right. Founders and executive team. Yep. We That's are great. And the, the, the mission really of faith matters is, um, to sort of maybe not recapture, but, uh, but at least capture the expansive vision that we think our faith tradition really has, you know, from its, from its very beginning. I think Joseph Smith, um, you know, was, uh, for, you know, for any flaws that he had, he was gathering truth from wherever he could find it. You know, he found it, um, he found it in, you know, Masonic rituals and he found it in, uh, ancient Egyptian papyri and, there, he had he had no exclusivity in terms of where he was willing to find inspiration and create something great out of it, and I think that's really one of the um, roots of uh, of our faith and Mormonism more broadly that we don't maybe give enough airtime to. That we're we're looking for truth, period, mm -hmm. and we've found something really really great in this in this faith. We've we've found a God who is a God of love, you know, a God that is willing to, to weep with, with us, a savior who's, we think, you know, whose primary role is to heal us from our, from our woundedness. And those are remarkable doctrines. And, um, and I think the, the overall mission of, of faith matters is to say, this is, this is, this is expansive. This is loving, this is healing. And let's get that message out to the world you know, as best we can. And do that primarily through podcasts. You do events, you yep. have articles. 
Yeah, so uh, the the biggest things that we're doing right now are articles on the website. So the the website is faithmatters.org. We also have a we also have a podcast, the Faith Matters podcast. Um, one of the big initiatives that we're working on right now is called the Big Questions Project. Yeah, I love that title. Yeah, yeah. and the what what's interesting a little bit that that's different about this, and I, I would say than than apologetics, is that we're not. It's not the Big Answers Project. You know, and this yeah. is something that really it resonates with me because like I told you earlier, like going to going to apologetics website and saying, I need the answer that, that never really resonated. I never felt like I was, I was able to find it. And what we're doing with faith matters um, is trying to approach the question as a question, you know, and gather different voices. And we, and so we are tackling topics like, you know, like polygamy, like the book of Abraham, uh, evolution, LGBTQ issues, Great. all of those things, but we're not saying here's the answer, you know, here's how you can resolve it. But we're, what we're trying to do is create a space where we're saying there are, you know, many other thoughtful people like you that are, that are exploring these questions and working through it and trying to figure it out and give a platform for all different types of perspectives on it. And at the same time, create a community that, you know, anyone can be a part of, um, of like-minded Latter-day Saints. That's great. So needed. I wish I'd connected with Faith Matters earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and talk about what a local leader, a Bishop Relief Society president, elders corn president can do to just create a feeling of of people can belong. So I think um, definitely at the beginning of this whole process, I think the thing that would have been most helpful is exactly what you what you threw out that you would have said to somebody who or, or could have said to somebody who is really experiencing crisis, which is just kind of just, I respect that you're in the middle of this. And, and I think, I think that would have, um, that would have just given me so much peace. I, I, I think you're just in such a vulnerable place and, and maybe even, I think I had an especially hard time approaching a leader just as a, as a woman to the priesthood, because I felt like, I was waiting to, for them to inspire me, to tell me what God told me I was supposed to know. And it was really hard to figure out how I fit in that dynamic anymore. And so it would have been really empowering for a leader to just, to just validate that I was, I was seeking truth out of integrity and, and that it wasn't a, a sort of deficiency in faith that it was, it was, um, hopefully a maturity or, or at least, it was a reaching for God and for, for a leader to just validate that this was really true reaching and, and not some sort of rebellion would have, that would have just been a big, that would have been a big layer of, of pain that would just be stripped away. Just having, having that sort of validation from someone who, who was in charge. I think I learned somewhere along the line that I can validate how someone feels, even if they feel different than traditional sort of most LDS members feel. And it doesn't mean I'm selling out my personal beliefs or the, the traditional church beliefs. I just I recognize mm-hmm. I can do both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you, if I hold slightly different feelings about polygamy, my first yeah. reaction would be to pull you to my way of thinking or the traditional way of, and yeah. I think I've, I've learned and I'm not perfect to this, but I think I can hold your, I can do more to minister to you to hold validate how you feel. And if you feel pain to hold your pain versus yeah. dismiss that and yeah. try to. And so I think it's just a principle of ministering yeah. um, that I've never been taught and I don't claim to be an expert, but I think 
that's one of the things I like about what you're both teaching on this podcast is I think we can all do that. That doesn't require a lot of schooling or a lot of scripture study. I yeah. can just, everybody can do that. Everybody yeah. can just listen to a story and honor their story. And I think we can hold, I don't think it's a requirement to be, I sort of think, you know, your commitment to the church and your desire to to contribute and do what's right, behind that, we can have different feelings about polygamy, for example, yeah. or LGBTQ or the Book of Abraham or horses. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not necessarily an insight or commitment to the church or a commitment to help other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think we just need to create more space for people as they're doing their best. You know, the church phrase now is stay on the covenant path. So I use that phrase and say, you know, this is if we honor people how they feel and create a culture that they can feel the way they feel as they're doing the best to stay on the covenant path, we'll keep more people on the covenant path. Yeah. Um, so any more you want to talk about belonging? Um, I do want to just mention my brother's book. I think you know my brother, yeah. David. Yeah. Um, David is the owner of the third top listened episode of our 195 episodes. Hey. Oh. He's episode 197, and he did a book called Ministering to Those Who Question, and it's called Bridges. And I would just encourage um, local leaders to read this book, and a lot have. And I've, my brother's told me a lot of good feedback he's gotten. Is it just also addresses some of the things you're talking about is when people have questions, and you've had honest questions, um, and how do we handle that? And yeah. I just think that's an area where there's just more um, understanding that we can share with each other to do just do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on this subject before we go on to our last segment, gifts of, of faith crisis? Well, just the one, the one thing that you said that sort of struck me was the, this phrase, the covenant path. And traditionally, we've talked about the straight and narrow path. You know, and a lot of uh, uh, growing up, I think um, this is not a new insight by any means, but you think of that as a straight, meaning, you know, it's a, it's a straight line and narrow path. But, mm-hmm. you know, straight just means narrow. Uh, when you spell it without the GH, you know, and so what that's really saying is the narrow, narrow path. And I, you have to wonder, I guess, why it's so narrow. And I think it's because it's individual. Like there's not really room for all of us to be walking the same path if it's a narrow, narrow path, right? It's, it's totally, and and it's at the same time, it's not straight with a GH. I love that. Right. It's a winding, it's a winding path. And so the covenant path for each of us I think yes, it has certain it has certain checkpoints, by all means, but it looks completely different for everybody. And so, for a local for a local leader that's um, that's talking to somebody that's not on their path, it's just accepting that this is a this is a different path, and it, by necessity, it's a different path because we're each on our own. Love that. I love the visual of just creating space for people as they're doing their best. That's great. I there's really quick. There's this. Um, idea in Buddhism that, or an image that I just, I think about a lot. Um, it's the, it's the, it's the master pointing at the moon. And if truth represents the moon, then, then our church is the finger pointing to the moon. Right. And so the focus should never be on the finger or the person it's really at the moon. And so I, I feel like that's the most effective thing a leader can do is just, and it's kind I think, um, elder Holland really brought this up in conference just barely that the, the point of everything we do at church is to, is to send us to God. And so everything, every single thing we do should be, should be directing us to God. And if, if it's not, then we need to like, look at it and figure out why are we doing it still? But I I think that that's the most influence a leader can have on me for good is, is just pointing me to, 
to God. And, and usually that does not, it has never looked like arguing about church history or, or any of the, any of the facts that I'm having issues with. It's, it's about creating a place that feels safe for me to figure that out for myself. And so if I am feeling welcome and, and, and loved, I think I can, I can see God at church and, and God can work through church. And that, that's the most important thing that I, I think a leader can make space for and can do as a, as a leader, they have a lot of power in, in just making it a place that feels welcoming to anybody and and wherever they are. I love the, I love the visual of a finger pointing to the moon and we, and the, the, the fingers, the means to the end, the moon are coming into yeah, God. Yes. It's interesting. I thought of my own analogy one morning on a walk and I thought an island in the ocean represents the moon mm-hmm. or coming into God. And the current represents our church bringing me towards that ocean. Wow. Um, but then sometimes that current works against me. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, and I, in a imperfect culture, an imperfect church, at times the current makes it harder for me to come towards that island. And I've, mm. I've felt some of that at times, and I've recognized it's not me doing anything wrong or I haven't gotten off the right current. So sometimes that part of the visual analogy sort of yeah. has been part of my journey to recognize at times there's been some currents that have worked against me, and I've learned to validate those currents. Um, but then I love your phrase here, generous... Um, I forgot the Generous rest. Assumptions. I yes, can't even read the rest of it. <laughs> um, talk about, um, I, you framed this before we went live, Aubrey. You've, no one's ever framed the gifts of faith crisis, which is instead of the positive word you put there. So I'm thinking this segment is talking, and you've inferred this a lot already or taught this already. It's just there's positive things that have happened because of this journey. Yeah. So um, I really do feel like it It has been such a gift at it's not a tragedy or something that happened to us that I regret. I I feel like it was a, a really, um, it was a refiner's fire to use our, our church language. And, and I feel like the things that I've, um, that it really changed in me, first of all, was just this humility. I think it, it challenged my ego and it made me realize how much I liked feeling like I was special and had this thing that, that, not everyone had, it was like my testimony kind of felt like a badge of honor and not just my testimony, but the God having this exclusive truth. And, and so, so introducing uncertainty to that picture was really a gift of humility because suddenly now the world had valuable truths to offer to. And, and, um, and so I think I, I've really gained an appreciation for the ways that other people connect to God. And some of those things have, have helped me too. But, but most of all, I just, I just appreciate this new perspective and, and recognizing that people are, are legitimately finding God in, in ways that aren't familiar to me. And I really respect that now. And I think that was invisible to me before. So that, that's probably the biggest. And I think the other, um, the other big gift is that I recognized how many ways I had tangled God up with fear and, I think my, you know, like I said before, my testimony was really wrapped up in fear and, and everything I did at church had something to do with fear. I, I, the way I prayed was very fear-based and, and so, um, I just having to get really comfortable with not being sure anymore was a, a good way to shine light in, in all of the darkest places. It made me look 
right in the face, all of the things that I was really afraid of. And so it's, it's changed the way I, I pray and, and try to connect to God. And instead of, I think before it was sort of a habit to just list all of my anxieties in prayer and even, and that included, please, please tell me if the church is true. I just, it was, I was so afraid. I just like needed somebody, I just needed to know for sure. And I think that these years have been such good practice in just letting go of needing that kind of certainty and being really comfortable accepting what God does give me. And so, so I, I value contemplative prayer a lot more than I ever did because it's a way to, to not have to make a a verbal list of my anxieties and, and to just sit peacefully and quiet and try to connect with God and feel open and willing to, I, I, I love what, how Adam um, Miller talks about this kind of radical acceptance where you, you choose to break bread with whatever God gives you. And I, I just love that image that whatever pops into my lap, I can break bread with that and trust that God is still leading me along. And, and, um, I, I think I wasn't able to think about my life that way before this whole crisis of faith happened. So, so just a new way to connect to God. And then, um, and then, I think it helped me to refine what I was looking for. Was I, was I trying to reinforce my commitment to the church or is my commitment to truth? And, and those things had always been synonymous, but when it didn't feel synonymous, it it was good for me to learn how, how to, um, realize that truth is really what I'm looking for. And so I, I value the church because it has been my vehicle my whole life for helping me to find God. But that, I think just recognizing and, and, um, facing the things that didn't resonate with me have, that's helped me to let go of, of things that didn't matter and hold on to the good fruits. And I think the fruits of the church have been almost entirely good. And, and so experiencing this, this excruciating crisis helped me to just let go of the bad fruit and just realize that it wasn't all or nothing. I can, I can recognize when something doesn't resonate with me and when it fills me up with joy. And, and that's helped me to find God in a way that I really wasn't capable of before because I waited for someone to tell me how I should feel. And so starting from scratch and, and building a testimony little by little, or, or maybe not building. I, I, I like the, I like the metaphor more of of digging, like digging for water, like just digging deeper and deeper. And, and you get all kinds of rocks and things that don't matter, but I feel like there is still a pathway through all the mud. There's still a pathway to finding connection to God. And that's just made the hardest things about church history more palatable, not because I needed, I don't need them to be, I don't need them to be palatable anymore. I can call them if they feel like mud, it's mud and I can still find water there. I can find God somewhere. And, and so I think I really needed, I think I needed this, this whole experience to, um, to just help me find my own very personal connection to God that I, I just really had never discovered. So those are, those are probably the the ways it has transformed. You have a wonderful gift of coming up with phrases I keep writing oh. them down oh. <laughs> in in the middle so of nice. all the great big ideas you're sharing, but um, tangled up God with fear. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful, just the word tangled, that created an instant visual of this fear kind of wrapped around God and how that yeah. really isn't our doctrine, but culturally and um, there's a, and I love Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk about, you know, trying to take the fear. Yeah. Um, 
I love what you just said about that and I, a loving God. And I don't, yeah. I think we have too much fear. A lot of that's yeah. generated by the us versus them culture. And yes, um, and I just think Satan uses fear in a manipulative way um, that God wouldn't want. I think he would want to de-fear us in yeah. some ways. That doesn't mean he decommandments us or yeah. <laughs> it's eat, drink, and be merry. But I really love your thoughts on that. Oh, thanks. And, and especially in faith crisis, you know, there's so much fear there, but God is not the spirit of fear, right? We It's power and love and a sound mind. And to me, that means diving into a faith crisis when you feel that fear. It means that feeling is not telling you to be careful. That feeling is saying, what's wrong here? And, and look into it and find, you know, use your, use your mind and that, that the sound mind that God gives you and, and shine a light where it feels scary and dark. And I, I, that has been, that has been a pathway to connection for me, not, not disconnection. Like I was so afraid that it would be. Yeah. Tim, do you have any thoughts on gifts of faith crisis? Yeah. Just a couple, although I don't think I can say it much better than Aubrey did. Um, I think for me, authentic faith is probably what I would call authentic faith is probably the biggest, the biggest gift from, from faith crisis. And I, I guess I really should put faith crisis in sort of air quotes because I don't think it was a crisis of faith. I thought, I think it was a crisis of, uh, you know, what I thought was what I thought was faith. And, um, when you, I guess when you start going through this, like I, like I mentioned earlier, like a lot of times coming from a Latter-day Saint background, you're dealing with this, with this paradigm of, of knowing. And I think, just, I think that's actually part of, part of our natural man, you know, and our, and our natural woman is this, is this constant quest for, for certainty. We just really, really want that. And I, I think in terms of like our biological and evolutionary heritage, that totally makes sense, right? It's like, we're afraid of the dark because we don't know what danger might be out there. Like we want to like flip on the lights and we want to know, you know, what the potential, what the potential dangers are that could, that could hurt us. And we apply this to our spirituality as well. Like we need to know that the church is true and we need to know, you know, exactly who God is and what he's like and what our standing is with him because to not know is, is insecurity. It's, it's danger. And going through this, um, but at the same time, it's interesting because if you take Alma's definition of faith, once you know, you don't, you don't actually have faith anymore. Your faith is, your faith is totally dormant. And so I think, but at the same time, you know, when you actually read the words of, of Jesus Christ, what he emphasizes is faith, not knowledge. And so for me, what came out of this was, and uh, I guess a vulnerability and an uncertainty to accept to accept that lack of, of security. Like I truly, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, a lot, a lot of things, but I do, but I do choose to believe a lot of things. And so, and I, and I think that's really, and I, I can only speak for my own, for my own path, obviously, but I think for the majority of us, for the majority of our lives, I think that must be what God intends because he talks about faith so much, you know, it's a lack of, by definition, it's a lack of knowledge. And when you have that uncertainty, yes, there's, there's a lack of security com- that, that comes with it. But at the same time, the huge gift is this flexibility and this ability to explore and, and find your own path. And that's been, uh, that's been incredibly 
meaningful to me, like, and Aubrey mentioned a little bit about this, to be able to examine my own conscience and say, what do I really, what do I really think about this? And having not, um, having not gone through this faith crisis and being stuck in that original rigidity that I had, it, there's no room, there's no room to, to think like that. And so, and so that's not only helped me get to know myself better, but I think it's helped me come closer to understanding the nature of God, who is a loving, you know, like I mentioned before, who I truly believe is a, a loving and healing God. And ironically, throughout this process, as we've stayed and wrestled through this, I've found connection with God in the church specifically more than I ever had before. Um, there have been several specific instances even when I, where I've connected with ward members or connected with something that was said or something that I read that, you know, the church was the direct source of that where I felt particularly connected to God. And that, that told me that God's here in this church. And if it's, if it's okay for God to be here, you know, then that's, then that's good enough for me. Do you have time? Because I know you got here late because of traffic to do a segment on scrupulosity. Sure. Yeah. Um, they, um, Tim and Aubrey, there was traffic, so they got here late. But for you, you don't know that. <laughs> it was legitimately traffic, for the record. And I'm just sensitive because at our home, there's no kids living here. and your home, there's four kids living. But before we went live, we talked about scrupulosity. And um, we did a podcast, episode 191. One with Dr. McClendon. It's a word that it took me about a week to learn how to pronounce, (laughs) and I'm still trying to understand it. But I look back on the YSAs that I worked with, and I recognize that there was a fair, that at times there was scrupulosity going on with the YSAs, and I had no understanding that that's what was going on. And I probably failed to fully meet their needs because I didn't recognize scrupulosity. And as I just mentioned that before we went live, Tim said, hey, that's me. I that's I have scrupulosity. And yep. you shared a little bit of that. So just will you teach our listeners what that is and and just your own journey with it? Just anything you want to share about that? Yeah, for sure. So I, I'll start with my with my journey. So I think the first place that it reared its head, it was was on my mission, really. And the um, missions are are they can be difficult. They could be pressure cookers, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. And at least from my perspective at the time, it was so important, um, to be perfect, uh, because there, there were literally spiritual lives at stake, right? If I wasn't perfect, then I wouldn't have the spirit. And if I didn't teach with the spirit, then people would not feel the truth of what we were preaching and their own, their own eternal destiny, you know, uh, could be, could be lost because of what I had, because of the mistakes that I had made and scrupulosity, um, you know, took that to a, a whole new level for me. And, you know, it's, it's OCD, you know, it's a OCD is a, a bigger umbrella and can manifest itself in, in different ways. Um, a lot of people think of, of OCD as, you know, needing to line up the pencils perfectly or, you know, have your bed made or, you know, excessive vacuuming or whatever it is. Um, in scrupulosity, you, um, you need to follow the rules perfectly. And uh, like I said, a mission is just the perfect place for that, unfortunately, to, to manifest itself. And it's also the age when when it, it begins to be an issue for a lot of, a lot of people. Yeah. And so essentially from, from day one on my mission, that meant for me questioning my own worthiness. And if I was actually qualified to have the spirit and by extension, if I would be able to save spiritual lives or if I'd be 
sort of inadvertently destroying them. And um, so really in the MTC, uh, what, what starts to happen is a lot of times you'll think of something that actually happened, you know, an instance in your life um, that happened previously and start to assign new and sort of nefarious meaning to it. And so I looked back on things that, that I had done, you know, from, like I said, from day one in the MTC, even looking back in, in high school and saying, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I forgot that I had, had done that thing. I should have confessed this before I came out. I need to, I need to make an immediate confession and hopefully, you know, hopefully get the spirit back or, you know, maybe I'll just be sent home. And in reality, you know, we're talking about very, very minor infractions from anybody else's point of point of view, but scrupulosity, you get into this, this chain of thinking where you build it up into something much, much bigger than it ever needed to be. And so I got into a cycle of constantly, uh, constantly confessing to my, to my leaders. So this, this happened with branch presidents in the MTC. It happened with my mission president, uh, during the duration of my mission. And eventually it got to the point where, um, and I guess there were certain, there were certain things, mostly thoughts that I had, um, that I, I would start to confess it to my mission president and he would say, you know what, Elder, if it's a thought, then don't worry about it. Like, just move on. And I would say, okay, okay, I guess that's how it's going to be. But then the scrupulosity in the OCD, it doesn't let that go. And so, and at the time, I obviously didn't have any vocabulary for this whatsoever. And so basically, if I would have a thought that was, that was bad in some way, um, you know, according to, my, according to my perspective at the time, I, I just called that Satan. You know, that was Satan putting a thought into my head. And if I had a thought like, oh, you need to go confess this, that was the spirit. That was the spirit telling me that. And so it was this crazy cycle of uh, guilt uh, and confession, which brought momentary relief. You know, after I'd confess something, you know, I'd feel good for really it was probably just that day. And then by the next day, either something new had happened, I'd had some new thought that I thought was terrible, or I would think of something else in my past that I thought um, that I thought was made me, you know, made me unworthy. And it would be this new, it would be this new cycle of, of guilt until I was able to confess again and sort of release the, and release the pressure. But eventually it got so really absurd with that cycle. And I thought, and I had worked certain things into such a big deal that I believed that I was beyond, I was beyond saving. And I guess the, the technical way that I thought about this, and this is just a little bit weird, but it was like somebody that has these kind of these kind of thoughts or this kind of past. And again, I was very much a straight arrow now that I see it with a, you know, a more normal perspective. But at the time thinking about like, I've gone so far down this, this path of sin that I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to be able to get married. I'm never going to have an eternal family or worst case, you know, some of these things that I've done are so severe that I'm basically, you know, we don't need to get into the exact theology here, but like I'm going to hell and there's nothing that I can do about it at this point. It's just, I'm, I'm beyond really what, um, what can be reasonably repented of. And the only, and the only thing that I decided I'd be able to do was help others not suffer my fate essentially. And so that meant st sticking it out on my mission and, you know, doing the best work that I could and just saying, Hey, yeah, I'm a lost cause, but I still know and have the truth and I'm going to share it with other people 
so that they can live the life with an internal family that I won't ever be able to have. And um, that, that was the entirety of my mission. And it was, it was actually very, very, very difficult. Um, I think my mission president um, was a fantastic guy. If he had had, if he had had any real training on, on this sort of thing, I think my first interview with him, he would have immediately just known what he was dealing with and probably had some better, better tools for it. Um, I, um, I was, and it, and it didn't go away obviously once I, once I came back because I wasn't dealing with it and it sort of came to a head, um, a few years later, um, Aubrey and I, I worked through, you know, certain things enough to get married and I was applying to graduate school and I ended up applying and, and getting in and decided that, well, and after the whole application process was over and, and I got in, I was hit with this, with this thought from, from OCD, which is you cheated on your essays. You don't deserve to have gotten in. And this is the sort of terrible thing about scrupulosity is it it attacks, it seems like whatever matters to you most at the time. So on my mission, you know, what mattered to me most was worthiness. And so it attacked that at that moment, what mattered to me most was fulfilling my dream of being able to go to, uh, to grad school. And so it attacked that. And so what I decided was a, I was either going to have to, uh, confess, uh, to the admissions committee, essentially that I had cheated on my, my essay. And the real background was just like any, everybody does. I had sent my essay out to be, edited uh by my friends and uh their edits came back and i accepted some of their their suggestions and based on that i felt like those hadn't been truly my words in my essay and so i had gotten in to the program that i wanted to get into on false premises and so the solution to that again the cycle is confess to sort of relieve the pressure um but at the same time I realized how weird that would be for a, for you know a potentially admitted student to call the admissions committee and say, "Hey, I cheated on my essays. Is it, like, I'm just going to leave this in your hands," you know. And so the solution instead was take my own take myself out of the uh, out of the mix. And so I was going to I was not going to go to grad school after all, even though it was really in most ways a lifelong dream of mine. And at that point, I told I I, I had been having this discussion with Aubrey. And she said, basically, like, heck, you're not going. I'm making you an appointment. <laughs> like, because we had figured out at this point that it was OCD, um, but I'd never truly addressed it, just through online research or whatever. And so she literally called a therapist, an OCD specialist, made an appointment, and I started going regularly for those next few months. And it just was a total life changer. Um, that there, this, It really is, I mean, there are, scientifically, you know, proven ways of, of dealing with this stuff. And it doesn't obviously work the same for everybody, but the, the methods that the therapists use, um, like exposure response therapy, it, it, um, it actually works, you know, and the eventual conclusion of most of that, for me, the exposure is saying, you know, maybe I did, maybe I did cheat or maybe I did sin or whatever it is. And then the response prevention is saying, however, I'm not going to go uh, confess that. And that's incredibly painful and incredibly, uh, you just feel torn inside because with OCD, you want to be and scrupulosity in particular, you want to be so perfect. You want to be so upright. You want to be so honest. And you feel like by not confessing and by not, you know, 
airing the laundry out for everybody to, to see and then decide that you're worthy, you are being dishonest in a lot of ways. But once you, once you actually practice that skill, you start, you, you start to be able to see things from a high level again and say, wait a second, like what I'm going through, what I did on my essays, you know, was actually totally normal or, you know, on, on the mission, the thoughts that I'm having are actually totally normal. And when you sort of accept that that's normal and, uh, and sort of accept that, um, uncertainty, then the thought just kind of goes away and, you know, and it can take very, you know, very difficult work and it was not easy actually dealing with it. But, um, for me, I did luckily get to the point where I was okay and I didn't need to call the admissions committee. And I went, uh, we, you know, we went to grad school and had the time of our lives. And so it was a, it has been a long journey and I, I feel for anybody out there that has OCD and, or scrupulosity or anything that's, um, causing them to sort of tear at themselves on the inside because it is very, it is very difficult. It's been, I would say probably the, the most significant trial of, of my life. And, um, and I'm just grateful that now there are, you know, professionals that know how to deal with it and that the church is taking strides to uh, educate leaders on how to, how to, um, help members with that as well. Great job of just communicating about this. Um, I encourage our listeners to listen to episode 191, Dr. Deborah McClendon. Um, also go to the Ensign, the September Ensign. It's, apparently there's articles that are digital only. She wrote an article about this. Um, talk about um, its ability to cause you not to feel the spirit, because some people would say anytime you don't feel the spirit, that's a spiritual weakness and be, needs to be corrected with more spiritual behavior, increased spiritual behavior. Just talk about that link. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, for me, I, the... And maybe you never not felt the spirit. I don't know if you've lost, felt so, the, didn't feel the spirit at times on your mission. It's a good question. I mean, for me, I, I guess I never necessarily put the burden of feeling the spirit at all times on myself. Mm-hmm. And so that wasn't necessarily my line. Um, but it did very much confuse what the spirit was. And so, like for me, like I said... A, pro- a, a prompting from scrupulosity that says you need to go confess or, um, or whatever. Like, I don't know anymore. Like at that point, if that is, if that's the spirit or not. And actually I can think of one instance in particular, this actually happened before my mission where I was driving down, I was driving down the road by myself in my car and there was a little, just like a little stick, like maybe 12, 18 inches that was sort of sitting between the lane I was in and the bike lane. This is like a 35 mile an hour road. And, um, I noticed it and kept going. And then this thought hits, Hey, like you got to go move that stick out of the road. Like it's a little bit, it's kind of jutting into the lane and it's like, Oh, that's silly. Like it'll be fine. But then the thought is, well, you know, what if like, for instance, what if somebody like sees that out of the corner of their eye they think it's a, they think it's a snake or something like that. And so they swerve, say mm-hmm. somebody else is coming down the, the other side of the road at the same time and they get into a head on collision and you know, there's some disaster and that's all going to happen because I didn't obey this prompting that I just had to turn around and go throw the stick out of the road. And so literally I'm a mile down the road, having had this internal debate with myself, turn around, drive back and go move this little and go move this little stick. And so I alleviate, and that was, that's the equivalent of confessing on your mission, right? It's just like going and obeying the, obeying the thought that comes from scrupulosity. 
And in my mind, as a religious person, it was like, hey, that could have been a prompting, like from the spirit. Like you hear, you hear uh, uh, testimonies in sacrament meeting all the time where it's like, you know, I was prompted to slow down. I was prompted to do this. And like, and so for me, it became very, very confusing. What's actually the spirit talking to me and what's just scrupulosity um, or OCD in some way that's telling, that's giving me this quote unquote prompting. And so I guess that's more how I, I would relate it. A, a lack of being able to define the spirit because well, it all got so mixed in. One of the things I've learned after listening to Dr. McClendon and you is there is relief in confessing. So I'm going back to my being on the other side of being a YSA bishop, and I'm wondering what percent of those YSAs were finding relief in confession. Um, and But it, as Dr. McClendon pointed out, it just reinforces the whole cycle. That's so right. That, I was actually doing a disservice to the YSAs, even though they left the bishop's office relieved, and it was a good day for them. It was not helpful in the long run for getting clinical help because it was not a spiritual weakness. There wasn't a confession that was needed, even though that was somewhat relieving. That's right. It is. It is relieving. It's like it's like letting the the pressure out for just a bit. But it's not. I don't. I I don't think it's healthy in the long in the long term. And a lot of times, excuse me. You um you do feel as someone with scrupulosity in particular, you do get unintentional reinforcement from those around you. Um. Because you'll you'll confess something that truly didn't need to be confessed, and the response is, "Wow, like you're very you know you're very pure. You're you're really on a next level of trying to keep your life in line with what with what God's commanded." And so, not only do you get the the relief of having confessed it, having it out there, so you're not you're not hiding this thing anymore, but also it's like, "Wow, you know, like this is what it takes to be to really achieve that next level of of purity," and. The real, um, the real perspective that you want to have instead of, instead of I'm sure now that, that I'm okay is I don't know if I'm okay. Like maybe I did sin. Maybe I did have this terrible thought. You know, maybe if I leave that stick on the road, somebody is going to get into a, a, a head on collision and it's going to be my fault. And once you, once you accept that uncertainty, this is the most difficult thing I think for people with OCD, a lot of the, t- a lot of the time is to accept uncertainty and say, you know, maybe my worst fears that I'm playing out in my mind right now really are true. And the irony of it is, is that once you do accept that and say, I don't need to convince myself anymore, um, either through confession or through this unhealthy cycle of repeated thoughts that I'm okay. Um, then the thought, then the thought seems to, seems to leave. Which is what you did on your mission. Cause you just incorrectly concluded, you know, there's no, you're, your no salvation or exaltation yeah. for you. Yeah. You sort of accepted that worst case scenario and you said, okay, um, now I'm going to just make my mission about helping other people get to heaven. Cause I can't ever yeah. get there. And, yeah. and why your older self right now in your mid thirties would love to go back mm. to your 20 year old self, 21 year old self and put your arms around that kid yeah. and tell him the things you know now. I, can I just add it? That feels so counterintuitive to hear a confession <laughs> as a, you know, as a wife and I'm sure as a leader and, and you can see that, oh my gosh, this is not something that you need to be confessing. And so you want to comfort and to give them all the certainty in the world that of course you don't need to confess. And of course that wasn't dishonest or impure or whatever, whatever it is you want to just gift them that 
that certainty again. And I had to learn to stop doing that, even though it feels so wrong to say, maybe you did lie. And I'm thinking in my head, like, oh my gosh, he did not lie. Like I've been here through this whole process that, that, that was not cheating. And that's what I want to say. But I, I had to learn that I was, I, I literally was making it worse by, by re- reassuring him that it was okay and that he was honest. And, and I just have to, I just have to know when something sounds like a confession to just say like, yeah, maybe. I love that he told you, Aubrey, and I love your answer. And I love, um, oh, a thought just came to my mind that just left. Um, I will say. Scrupula, go ahead. Yeah, just Aubrey. Yeah, Aubrey became one of my major outlets for this. It's not always confessing to your church leader, although in a, in, in this context, you know, it, it often is, but you know, you have an impure thought and it's like, oh, well, I need to, I need to confess that to my wife, um, to make sure that, you know, she says we're still, we're still okay or whatever it is. And so mm-hmm. I ended up unintentionally putting that burden on her. And like she said, this is absolutely no fault of hers. Her natural response is to, is to comfort and, and validate that confession. And it, while it momentarily lets that pressure off in the long term, it just reinforces that it just reinforces that cycle. And so it's very, I think it's very difficult and has been very difficult for her to, to change her behavior and sort of let me struggle with it and accept the uncertainty. But in the long term, that's really the only thing I think that that can end up working. And it, and it, it goes away like that. That's been the magic over the years is just that if I can, if I can resist and he's, and he's, staying in this awful place of just not knowing if he lied or, or did something wrong, it, that feeling really does eventually just subside and it moves on to something else. And then, and then it's like, it feels like, like confirmation that there's progress. And it sounds like this is some of our very best members that have, that have scrupulosity because yeah. they want to do the right thing. So they're, yeah. I've wondered if our culture adds to this, if we could measure this in other cultures, um, we talk about perfect obedience on a mission, and I felt impressed. I've always been uncomfortable with that because mm-hmm. it creates a bar that's unattainable. I've we've once talked about a sin resistant generation. That was a I don't want to be critical of any church talk, but that was uncomfortable because I think it creates an expectation that's just un unmeetable. And the longer I worked with the YSAs, the more I just wanted to help them feel it's okay that you have loving heavenly father parents that love you and that's unconditional and nothing you can do to can take them outside of their love. And this mortality yeah. is like two steps forward, a step back. Maybe it's two steps forward and four steps back yeah. sometimes. And just, you've got to be kind to yourself and thoughts in particular are life. I have, I'm 58 and I probably thought at 21 that my 50 year old self would only think pure things cause I'm so old now, but <laughs> I still work on thoughts yeah, <laughs> and I've learned to be okay with that. And I just, so those, I've thought about our culture sometimes and I don't want to sell out our doctrine to keep commandments. That's not what I'm wanting to do here, but just, I'm worried about the expectation, yeah. Yeah. And especially as a missionary, then wanting to be so pure and worthy yep. because of this higher cause he or she's been called to that then it kicks off in a mission sometimes. Yeah. One thing, one thing that I would like to see maybe change in our culture is our use of the term worthy itself. Talk like, about that. I, I think the, the term worthy or, if, or unworthy implies that you've somehow lost worth, that you've lost value in some way. And I just don't think that's true. I think from Heavenly Father's perspective, we all have constant and fixed worth, and there's literally nothing we can do to change our worth. And so I think we are all inherently worthy. And 
when when we make mistakes now i i guess i see that as as a a winding in our path you know rather than i'm no i'm less valuable than i was before i made this mistake and and so i what i would love to see is if we can reinforce for young people that they're they're worthy no matter what they're loved by the people around them and by loving heavenly parents no matter what and nothing nothing can change that and so that's how i would like to see us use the term worthy as you are worthy, not a question of, are you worthy? You know, and maybe there's some other term we can use, you know, uh, for, you know, when we do need to correct our, our own actions or, you know, become better in some way, but I don't think worthy is, is the term. We had a guest on the podcast that came up with this phrase, Amy, if you're listening, it's your phrase, my worth is set. Everything else is experience. I love that. Oh, wow. And, um, it's great. Any concluding thoughts? You've done such a great job on this podcast. Um, this is one of the finest podcasts we've done. They're all great, Aww. but you two are particularly wonderful insights. Any final I, thoughts? Maybe just one more thing about this OCD conversation is that I, I think it's really important to make clear that that those talks about about obedience and good and pure thoughts and you know sing, like the the sing a hymn. Kind the of, sing a hymn just made my thoughts worse. Yeah, I swear, because yes. then I was thinking about my thoughts. Right. Yes. <laughs> but but I I feel like it needs to be clear that those ideas, however problematic they may be for a, a person who's not afflicted with OCD, to someone who has OCD, those are those should just be completely off limits. That that's not what those talks are about. That these these thoughts that are are popping into someone's head who have OCD mean absolutely nothing about who they are or their soul or, or anything about morality. And I think it, it can be really confusing to think that you're somehow generating these images or, or thoughts. And that that's the nature of the beast is that you have no agency about the thoughts that are popping into your mind if you have OCD. So I think that's a, love that. and maybe back to this, um, when we were talking about the generous assumptions around leaders and teachers, I think the other piece that Brene Brown is really, um, that she talks about in her book is, is that yes, you have generous assumptions and you have good boundaries. And maybe this is a good place to bring that up that, that if you're, if you have a, a child or, or you have OCD or your spouse that you, you need to be asking yourself, what kind of boundaries do I need around church? And, and maybe my leader, if I have a leader who, who just isn't educated, then what can I do internal boundary wise or, or physical boundaries to keep myself safe and healthy Agreed. at church? Tim, any final thoughts? You know, I, I think my, the only thing that I would really want people to take away from this is that our paths, like, like I said before, our paths all, all look different and wherever you are on your path, I respect that, you know, as part of, as part of your experience. And I think, um, and I think there have been many wonderful people in my life that have done that for me. You know, Aubrey is Aubrey is number one. And so when either when you're going through a faith crisis or something or something difficult, you know, find those people around you who who respect your path. And if somebody around you is going through it, then then respect their path. I I tend to have a fairly universal view. I think it's Im- impossible for us to to judge other people just because we don't have nearly enough context. God has all the context. And I think typically God in his, uh, in his wisdom and with all of that context, he is going to be extraordinarily merciful, you know, more merciful than we can imagine to, uh, to all of us. And so 
I just, I, I, I just, I just want that, that perspective that I think is truly inherent in our religion to be, um, to be more broadly, uh, felt and, and talked about. That's great. Say your last name for us so I don't mispronounce oh, it. Oh, yep. Chavez. Chavez. Chavez, yep. So um, our listeners know that I'm not very good at learning last names <laughs> and saying them right. So I wanted to make sure you said it. But outside of that, um, great to have you, Tim and Aubrey. And you were, I love the respect you had for each other as you both spoke. You just gave each other time to speak. You didn't speak over each other. Um, there's just great chemistry between you. It's a model marriage to me for... Um, our younger people to have two people like you, where you are in our church with your faith, with your understanding and your ability to stay. It's couples like you that give me hope for the future in so many ways. So thanks for all you're doing on behalf of all our listeners. We have loved having you on. And this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Rich, uh, sorry, of Listen, Learn and Love.